0: SECTION 12 OF LIVES OF THE QUEENS OF ENGLAND, VOLUME 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. LIVES OF THE QUEENS OF ENGLAND, VOLUME 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Marguerite OF FRANCE, PART 2. The queen gave birth at Woodstock in the thirtieth year of her husband's reign to her second son, Prince Edmund, who was afterwards the unfortunate Earl of Kent. About this time, twenty-six pieces of dimity were given out from the king's wardrobe stores to make Queen Marguerite a feather bed and cushions for her charrette. Instead of finding the national rolls and records burdened with notices of oppressive exactions made by the queen-consort as in the case of eleanor of provence it is pleasant to observe that queen marguerite's charitable kindness pervades these memorials seen by few and by still fewer appreciated in the exchequer rolls exist many requisitions from the queen ordering that debtors for fines due to her be pardoned their debts and more than one petition that debtors of her dear lord, the king, may have time extended or be excused. One of these royal supplications is curious, and proves that the queen and her two little sons, Thomas and Edmund, prevailed on King Edward to pardon their dear friend, the lady Margaret Howard, a debt owed by that lady to the crown. As Prince Thomas, the eldest son of Queen Marguerite, was only six years old, and the infant Edmund much younger, it may be judged who prompted the young petitioners, and how the queen must have made the caresses of her infants work on the heart of their great father. To the honorable father in God, Walter, Bishop of Chester, treasurer to our lord king and father, Edmund, son of the king, salutes in great love. As our dear lady, Madam the Queen, has required, we would that you would grant to our good friend, Madame Marguerite, late wife of Monsieur Robert Hareward, the remission of her debt, written at Northampton, June 15. Prince Thomas and the Queen each wrote letters to the same effect, that their good friend may be spared her payment to the exchequer. Marguerite of France is the first instance of a Queen Consort of England, who ventured to stand between a mighty Plantagenet in his wrath and his intended victim. We learn, by the statement contained in an act of pardon by Edward I, that godfrey de Coiniers had committed the heavy transgression and malefaction of making the coronal of gold that crowned the king's rebel and enemy robert de bruce in scotland and that he had secretly hidden and retained this coronal till a fitting occasion but that these treasonable doings had since been discovered and convicted by the king's council no doubt godfrey the goldsmith would have been dealt with according to the tender mercies shown to Wallace and Fraser, if he had not found a friend in Queen Marguerite. For, says Edward I, we pardon him solely at the intercession of our dearest consort, Marguerite, Queen of England. The citizens of Winchester were likewise deeply indebted to Queen Marguerite, whose beneficent interference relieved them from the terrible consequences of King Edward's displeasure. To the mayor of Winchester had been confined the safekeeping of Bernard Perreries, a hostage of some importance whom the city of bayonne had delivered to the king as a pledge of their somewhat doubtful loyalty bernard made his escape on which king edward sternly commanded his sheriff of hampshire to seize upon the city of winchester and to declare its liberties void thus reducing the free citizens to the state of feudal villains the mayor he loaded with an enormous fine of three hundred marks and incarcerated him in the marshalsea till it was paid. In despair, the Winchester citizens appealed to the charity of Queen Marguerite. She recollected that when she was first married, she had been received at Winchester with the most affectionate demonstrations of loyalty. Moreover, she remembered that her husband had given her a charter, which entitled her to all the fines levied from the men of Winchester. Armed with this charter, she went to her loving lord, and claimed the hapless mayor and his fine as her personal property. She then remitted half the fine, took easy security for the remainder, and set the mayor at liberty. Nor did she cease pleading with her consort, till he had restored to Winchester the forfeited charters. During her husband's absence in Scotland, Queen Marguerite retired for security to Winchester, where she was deservedly beloved. Here she gave birth to a princess, her third but the king's sixteenth child the princess was called eleanora after edward's first queen and his eldest daughter who was deceased at that time she died a few months later before king edward reached the scottish border he fell ill at burg on sands he survived a few days till the prince of wales came up with the remaining forces time enough to receive his last commands which breathed implacable fury against the scots the dying warrior moreover commanded his son to be kind to his little brothers thomas and edward and above all to treat with respect and tenderness his mother queen marguerite while edward I remained unburied a hundred pounds was paid by his treasurer john de tunford for the expenses of the royal widow the may queen marguerite was married to edward in her seventeenth year notwithstanding the disparity of their ages they lived happily during a wedlock of eight years the chroniclers of england record no fault or folly of queen marguerite nothing exists to contradict the assertion of peers that she was good without in lack and a worthy successor of eleanora of castile like Adelicia of louvain the queen of henry i marguerite kept a chronicler to record the actions of her great lord he was named john o london not a very distinctive appellation But as we have given a personal sketch of Edward in his youth, we add a portrait of him in advanced life, drawn under the superintendence of his royal widow. His head spherical. This is the second instance in which we have found that the chroniclers of the Middle Ages notice the form of the head. His eyes round, gentle and dove-like when pleased, but fierce as a lion's, and sparkling with fire, when he was disturbed. His hair crisp, his nose prominent, and raised in the middle his chest broad, his arms agile, his limbs long, his feet arched, his body firm and fleshy, but not fat. He was so strong and active that he could leap into his saddle by merely putting his hand on it. Passionately fond of hunting, he was engaged with his dogs and falcons when not in war. He was seldom ill, and neither lost his teeth nor his sight dimmed with age. He was temperate, never wore his crown after the coronation, thinking it a burden. He went about in the plain garment of a citizen, excepting on days of festival. What could I do more in royal robes, father, than in this plain gabardine? said Edward once to a bishop, who remonstrated with him on his attire as unkingly. How so elegantly proportioned as a man as Edward I, came to be surnamed Longshanks, has been a question to all writers, since the opening of the stone sarcophagus in Westminster Abbey, when the body of that great warrior and legislator was found of just and fine proportions, without any undue length of legs. His stature was six feet two inches, from skull to heel. It appears that the insulting epithet, Longshanks, was a sobriquet given by an incensed enemy, and first took its rise from a satirical song, sung by the Scots, when Edward laid siege to Berwick, being his first step in his ambitious invasion of Scotland. Edward is said to have been so incensed at this song, that when he had stormed Berwick, he put every living soul to the sword, to the number of four thousand persons. In this siege, he displayed the fine horsemanship for which he was noted. What did King Edward, peer he had none like, upon his steed Bayard, first he won the dyke. Besides this steed bayard another called grey lyard is celebrated in the barons war as one on which he ever charged forward likewise his horse ferrant black as a raven on whose back though armed in proof sire edward could leap over any chain however high no chevalier of his day was so renowned for noble horsemanship as this most accomplished monarch yet it is certain that all which finally remained from his ambitious war in scotland was the insulting sobriquet of Longshanks. The original manuscript of the Queen's chronicler, John O'London, is a great curiosity. It is written in Latin on vellum, very finely and legibly penned, and ornamented with initial letters, illuminated with gold and colors. The centers of the most of these are unfinished, and the manuscript itself is a fragment. The description of Edward's person is accompanied by an odd representation of his face, in the midst of an initial letter the features bear the same cast as the portraits of the king there is the small haughty mouth the severe penetrating eyes and the long straight nose the king is meant to be shown in glory but the head is surrounded with three tiers of most suspicious-looking flames however such as it is it doubtless satisfied the royal widow to whom the work was dedicated the noble and generous matron margareta by the grace of god queen of england invites all men to hear these pages the plan of the oration is to describe the doleful bewailings of all sorts and conditions of persons for the loss of the great edward of course the lamentation of the royal widow holds a distinguished place in the commemoratio it commences thus the lamentable commendation of margareta the queen hear ye isles and attend my people for is any sorrow like unto my sorrow Though my head wears a crown, joy is distant from me, and I listen no more to the sound of my cithara and organs. I mourn incessantly, and am weary of my existence. Let all mankind hear the voice of my tribulation, for my desolation on earth is complete. The Queen's chronicler proceeds to paraphrase the lament for Saul and Jonathan. At length, he remembers the royal Marguerite by adding, At the foot of Edward's monument, with my little sons i weep and call upon him when edward died all men died to me these lamentations for a husband more than seventy from a widow twenty-six seem a little exaggerated yet the afterlife of the royal marguerite proved their sincerity although queen marguerite appeared in public earlier than was usual for the etiquette of royal widowhood in the fourteenth century it was in obedience to the dying commands of her royal lord Whose heart was set on a french alliance soon after her husband's death she went to boulogne with her son-in-law and assisted at his marriage with her niece isabella after she returned to england she lived in retirement spending her magnificent dower in acts of charity and in the encouragement of historians and architects while she lived her niece queen isabella led a virtuous and respectable life Marguerite did not survive to see the infamy of this near relative, or the domestic wretchedness of her stepson, with whom she had always lived on terms of affection and amity. Marguerite is the first queen of England, who bore her arms with those of her husband, in one scutcheon. Her seal is fixed to the pardon of John de Dalying, which pardon she had procured of her son-in-law, in the ninth year of his reign. We trace the life of this beneficent queen dowager by her acts of kindness and mercy. Queen Marguerite's principal residence was Marlborough Castle, on the borders of the forest of Savernake. It was there she died at the early age of 36, on the 14th of February, 1317. King Edward II's household book has the following entry relative to this event. Sent by the king's order to be laid upon the body of the Lady Marguerite, late queen of England, by the hands of John de Housted at Marlborough, the eighth of March, two pieces of Luca cloth. Also at the place of its final destination, the Grey Friars, various other pieces of Luca cloth were to be laid on her body at the expense of the King. She was buried at the Grey Friars Church, the magnificent structure which he had principally founded. Her body was buried before the high altar, wrapped in the conventual robe of the Franciscans. The splendid monument raised to the memory of this beneficent woman, was destroyed by the inquisitiveness of Sir Martin Bowes, Lord Mayor, in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, when the Grey Friars Church was made parochial. He, to the indignation of the antiquary Stowe, sold the Queen Marguerite's tomb and nine others of royal personages, together with a number of gravestones, for fifty pounds. Marguerite left her two sons joint executors to her will. Edward the Second empowered his dear brothers, Thomas Earl of Norfolk, Earl Marshall, and Edmund of Woodstock, co-executors, by the testament of our mother of good memory, Marguerite, late queen of England, to execute the said testament, and to have all goods and chattels that belong to the said queen, and all her corn on her manors, whether housed or growing green in the earth, from the fourteenth day of February last, when she died, 1318 they are to receive all debts due to the queen dowager, and pay what she owes, according to her will. The troubles of the reign of Edward the Second prevented the debts of the widow of his father from being paid, as we find the following petition concerning them. In the eighth year of Edward the Third, there is a petition to Parliament from Thomas, Earl of Norfolk, Marshal of England, and executor of the testament of Queen Marguerite, his mother, praying that the king will please to grant his good grace, that the debts of the deceased queen may be forthwith paid by his exchequer, according to the order of King Edward the Second, whom God assoil. Queen Marguerite is the ancestress of all English nobility, bearing the great name of Howard. The honors of her son, Thomas Plantagenet, Earl Marshall, were carried into this family by his descendant, Lady Margaret Mowbray, marrying Sir Robert Howard. The Howards, through this queen, unite the blood of St. Louis with that of the mightiest of the Plantagenet monarchs. The heiress of her second son, Edmund, Earl of Kent, married first Sir Thomas Holland, and then Edward, the Black Prince. Through her, this queen was ancestress of the nobility who bore the name of Holland, which family became extinct in the War of the Roses. End of section 12.